0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Karen Raghavan, a brand and business development consultant and growth advisor to both heritage beauty brands and startups. She is also the vice president of brand development at Parisma, a natural ingredient company. We kick off the discussion exploring the dynamic between heritage brands and startups operating in the same vertical, then moving on to discussing how consumption patterns for Chinese consumers can change when shopping abroad. We discuss the changes the pandemic has brought to beauty brands and their marketing, as well as the overall impact it has had on the retail environment. Karen also dives into what brands should consider when looking at KOLs and KOCs and why it's important to market your hero products versus your entire suite. We then dive into one of her passion projects, VIP Kid, an education platform addressing the pressure cooker environment around academic expectations Chinese parents have of their children, ending with a comparison of the American and Chinese school systems and how well they prepare our young for their professional adult lives. Enjoy.
1: The quality of the KOL or KOC that you may be targeting may not be the ones that you actually want. So you may get a lot of volume, but not a lot of quality. One neat trick is to look at the KOL and KOC on a global scale. Not all Chinese KOL or KOCs may reside in China. So this is something that I like to talk to a lot of my clients about, which is looking at the Chinese on a global basis. Where do they reside and whether they're influential to your end consumer in China or not?
0: Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Todd. All right. A quick introduction to yourself, if you don't mind. Tell us a little bit about where your experience in and your expertise on China comes from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've been in uh, beauty for pretty much uh, over 20 years, most of my career, Um, doing roles in global travel retail, as well as international business development for a lot of big Uh, what they call heritage brands, um, as well as most recently, a lot of startup brands that are looking to enter China. Um, I spent four years overseas in uh, Singapore running the Southeast Asia market, um, and then two fast and furious years uh, working on a big China project uh, for LVMH at Benefit Cosmetics uh, a couple of years ago. And now I work with a lot of startup founders on uh, entry strategy into China. So Staying really close to a market that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I love it because it's so fast moving and ever changing and very intellectually challenging. So, really happy to discuss uh, China
0: with you today. Okay, great. Yeah, and we can't wait to get into that. Would you mind quickly indulging me? What is a heritage brand?
1: Well, nowadays I hear that this name has been um, attributed to the Estee Lauders and the L'Oreal brands of the world. Um, P and G brands, Unilever. So I believe, from you know how people are using it in the industry these days, are sort of the legendary brands that are big, uh, the behemoths. I like to call them um, that are definitely being threatened by a lot of uh, fast-growing. Um, Clean, sustainable, green beauty brands that are cropping up in the space, um, who are offering definitely a different value proposition uh, to the customer. So, I I think that there is a very interesting change and shift in the landscape where a lot of big brands that have dominated the the beauty industry for decades are 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 having to relook at their product and marketing strategy in order to um, face off against some of these newer. Uh, and very attractive uh, startup beauty brands.
0: That's interesting. Do you find that there is any overlap between heritage brands? and startup brands and 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 products are they uh swimming in the same space at all are they able to work together are they connected are they communicating are startups engaging the heritage brands to be able to run some proof of concept stuff potentially supported or sponsored by the heritage brands or are they just staying far apart from each other
1: Well, I think in the M&A space, we're seeing a lot of activity in terms of the big conglomerates snapping up some of the smaller brands that they see um, that have basically captured on this opportunity. Um, so, and I think they're very smart. Instead of devoting resources internally um, and trying to shift a massive shift, a, a massive ship, um, they are uh, instead buying up some of these smaller brands in order to capture um, that potential. So, I do think that they are paying attention. I think that they probably moved a lot slower than they should have. Um, I think a lot of the product development um, that has gone on for a few years now didn't really. Um, jump on the bandwagon in terms of listening to consumers demand for more ingredient transparency, uh, more clean or natural ingredients, um, and uh and the whole sustainability shift. I think a lot of the brands, uh, the heritage brands, really just uh, were sitting back, I think a little bit and and feeling a little too safe and too comfortable uh, with the level of volumes that they're able to to bring on. Um, and so I think they now are probably having to um, really jump on that sort of opportunity via acquisition versus um, or maybe in parallel to a lot of internal reshifting.
0: When you're with Benefit Cosmetics, your area of focus was the uh, and I'm air quoting this Chinese travelers abroad, which is a consumer segment that we know is super influential in the retail world but not one that we've been able to get into on this podcast yet. Can you help us understand do consumption patterns for Chinese consumers change when they are traveling versus when they're at home in their home market, in their home base? How and why is that the case?
1: Yes, actually, this is a very interesting area of study and research that I did at benefit cosmetics. Um, everybody is obviously chasing the China market and have been for years. And obviously a lot of the newer brands are really chasing that opportunity with the rise of the e-commerce business business and landscape in recent years with, you know, Alibaba, JD, et cetera. Um, But, you know, even five years ago, uh, with a big quote unquote heritage brand such as like a benefit cosmetics, the China market wasn't a, it wasn't an easy, uh, wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't an easy business to run. Uh, growth obviously was, um, challenging, um, as well as uh, capturing the attention span and awareness of of the Chinese consumer. There's a lot of competition, a lot of brands entering the market. So we looked at um, basically what it is that captures the minds of, of Chinese consumers and Right around that time, we were we were noticing that obviously the travel retail business uh, boomed, and in certain markets, um, a great proportion of travel retail doors business went to Chinese consumers. So we noticed that there are a lot of Chinese consumers that go to Korea, Southeast Asia, etc. to travel. Right, um, the middle class was growing. They were starting to um, garner more wealth, and through that, um, through their travels, they were starting to find brands and products um, that they were bringing back home to share with them, with their friends and family, um, and to capture the price differential. It was, it's a significant back then. It was a much bigger price differential where some brands could be offering their prices um, thirty to sixty percent above what the home market price was. Um, so we did some studies. Um, it took about a year to really take a look at what Chinese consumers were were doing overseas. So one, they were um, starting to not travel necessarily with the tour groups. So I'm sure many of the listeners have seen um, historically the massive you know, buses with the big tour groups and, um, sort of the, uh, the flags, right. Where there's a tour guide leading groups of people into shopping malls. Um, they were, uh, with the rise of the, um, newer generation, they were looking at traveling more independently. Um, so kind of the acronym is FITs. Um, and these independent travelers were booking their own travel, uh, doing their own research. Um, And being a little bit more courageous and adventurous in terms of where they were looking to go. And they were looking to, you know, perhaps go to places that friends and family don't historically go to Um, with the rise of social media. It was also a big competition in terms of who can, you know, go to the far reaching places or never sort of the Um, lesser travel paths um, in order to post uh, videos and socials, uh, videos and photos on social media. So we looked at a lot of this uh, behavior and the younger generation were um, going overseas, making their shopping lists before they even traveled. Uh, So they had a very intentional shopping behavior as opposed to um, non-Chinese travelers who may go abroad, you know, go and visit a couple of stores or shopping districts and decide impulsively what they might wanna travel. Uh, Will the Chinese have a very intentional purchasing behavior where they will research the brands at length, research the products at length, research the pricing at length, and then mock up a list um, per location, per destination, um, and even uh, do a group buy, right? So if I'm going overseas, I'm going to go out to my friends and family and say, I'm going to be visiting San Francisco. I'm going to be visiting New York or London. Um, and I'm going to go and look for these brands who would like some of these products. And so that shopping list is is extremely aggressive and very comprehensive. Um, and so we definitely saw that through through some of our research.
0: Do you think that the Chinese travelers were making destination decisions based on stuff that they might want to buy versus buying stuff from the places that they were going?
1: Not necessarily. I think that there were certain uh, locations that were easy access. So Korea, uh, extremely easy to access. And also with um, all of the Korean dramas, K-beauty, all of those trends obviously uh, contributed to the desires to head to Korea, Um, Southeast Asia, obviously is another easy-to-access destination. I think the far-reaching destinations such as Australia or Europe or U.S., those were probably fewer in terms of numbers based on the uh, time away that they would need to spend, uh, right? Because you need at least a week or more to get overseas to Europe or, or the U.S., Canada, Australia. But a lot of the travel happened, I would say, regionally. Um, so, I would say that a lot of their destination decisions was, um, uh, how do you say, decided based on the time that they had in terms of vacation um, and access, um, as well as some of the cultural phenomena that were circling around uh, the market at that time, such as like the K Beauty and the Korean
0: dramas. Did those consumption patterns change? based on the region of the world they were traveling to and things like how long it might take to get there or customs or language or any of that?
1: Oh, 100%. Um, you know, for sure that they spent more in hotel and airline tickets when they traveled abroad. Um, I, there were some data that, that pointed directionally to more experiential um, spend when they traveled farther overseas, the shopping, obviously in terms of brands differed. Um, there are a lot of brands that they could see, um, overseas that weren't offered regionally. Um, and you know, there was a rise in, uh, how do you say a pricing comparison platform? I don't know if you've heard of Jessica's secret, this app was launched probably around 2014, 15 or 16. I, I regret that. I don't know the exact launch date of this app, but when I was doing research, I discovered it. Um, and it- it was launched by a Chinese founder. And basically, they managed to scrape all of the pricing across many different points of sales distribution around the world. So if you logged into this app, you could see the different prices for the products or brands that you were looking to buy and could make a decision in terms of where you might want to buy it based on that price. So if you were heading to Korea and then San Francisco, for example, maybe your stop off in Korea, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to buy this brand and this product, but maybe upon research, further research within an app like Jessica Secret, you may think, okay, wait a second, I see a lower price um, in San Francisco DV- DFS um, and decide to postpone your purchase. So it was there's, there's actually a lot of different contributing factors to how the Chinese decided to change their um, purchase decisions and, and purchasing behavior.
0: Could you juxtapose the traveling Chinese consumer to the traveling Western consumer just in what those consumption patterns might be? How do they differ and how are they similar?
1: Yeah. So. I believe that the Western consumer, we're looking for that experience. And, and uh, you know, things change so quickly in China that this research that I'm referencing is, you know, about five years old. And um, there are some studies or um, some qualitative reports now that show that the Chinese are shifting their traveling patterns, meaning that they are gearing toward more experiential. Type of experiences versus just purely a shopping trip. So I think that the Western, um, the Western consumer or the Western traveler has always traveled primarily for that experience, right? I'm not looking to go to Paris um, because I could buy that luxury handbag um, at a cheaper price than if I were to purchase it at um, Saks or Neiman Marcus in my home market, right? Um, but um, but there are signs that the Chinese consumer are kind of paring back their their shopping. Um, because they are looking at the experience um, bit a little bit more, uh, putting more weight toward that experience now. So I do believe that, especially with the Gen Zs and the younger generation, that the experiential bit um, and sort of the social media cred that they get, right, when they're posting overseas. Um, hey, I'm, I've am i gone to Banff in Canada, or I've gone skiing in whatever resort, or I'm doing something, um, a, a new activity that I'd like to share with my friends and family um, is starting to take a little bit more precedence than look at this amazing new you know, product or exclusive brand that I was able to access overseas. I mean, I think that that shopping pattern still exists, but I do already see within five year's time um, that there is already um, a shift that is starting to happen
0: do most brands most beauty brands of a certain size need to have a dedicated chinese traveler program i know benefit cosmetics had benefit cosmetics had one under your leadership can you tell me what the program looked like while you were there what you think a modern dedicated chinese traveler program needs to look like in 2022 assuming to Assuming a return to somewhat normal travel um, after, you know, post-COVID or even during a slowdown of COVID uh, in the not too distant future.
1: Yeah, I don't think there needs to be a specific Chinese traveler program anymore. I believe that a lot of brands have um, gotten way more educated over the last few years on the China market and the Chinese consumer. Um, I think when I first started, there was a separation between that Chinese consumer who everyone just visualizes being in the China borders and not realizing that the Chinese consumer is actually a global consumer. Um, And I can touch upon a little bit about the Chinese overseas population. Right. We're talking about the Chinese traveling consumer right now who lives in China and then goes overseas to um, to have vacations and then going back home. Um, But there's I mean, Within this sort of demographic, there is also an overlap with the overseas Chinese population who have emigrated um, to other countries around the world and still remain to be remain um, extremely influential uh, brand ambassadors to their. Friends and Family Network back home in China. So just to kind of um, address the question regarding Chinese traveling um, programs, I mean, I think COVID accelerated a little bit of that. So when we started looking at how do we um, communicate with that Chinese traveler better across our different points of distribution, right? We have to reach them where they are. So at that time we were designing a WeChat CRM program, uh, so that we would be able to communicate brand story, um, brand messaging, product newness, um, how, you know, any sort of, uh, how do you say, uh, engaging content that may actually stem beyond our products specifically. So, you know, maybe uh, a little bit more about San Francisco where Benefit Cosmetics is headquartered and a little bit more about traveling around the U.S. so that we could engage the consumer um, at a much higher level than just, um, you know, pounding her with product messaging. Um, We also looked at putting QR codes everywhere where we thought that she would visit so testing out qr codes within our boutiques uh, qr codes on our gondolas and travel retail locations Um, and i have to be honest at that time it was very unusual very new it took a lot of even internal um convincing because people were like okay you know in the us the qr codes are dead like nobody uses them what are we doing here Um, and so I think that sort of perspective has vastly sort of gone 180 now. Um, And I think actually the pandemic spurred a little bit more of that sort of omni-channel user experience a little bit more where people are realizing, wait a second, these QR codes are amazingly efficient and it provides a much more seamless experience. And it's not just for the Chinese travelers, for any sort of consumer now, right? Um, So when I think back to the sort of conversations I had uh, with the teams that I was working with in terms of what a significant, um, how do you say, improvement to the customer experience a QR code could provide Fast forward five years now and I see QR codes everywhere. I see them on product packaging. And that was something that I really wanted to convince the brand to do was to put a QR code on, on the box so that people could say, wow, I, I'm going to scan this and it'll go directly to a, a Chinese uh, PDP, you know? Um, and it, that, that way the consumer can immediately read in her own language what that product is all about Uh, or having a QR code right on the table in a store next to the display. So the Chinese who may or may not be um, English proficient or fluid could still research that product or brand in her own language right after scanning the QR code. So. I actually think that a lot of the retail experiences have been well improved to be able to address um, the Chinese. I mean, a lot of the QR codes now may may direct to English, um, English informational pages, um, but it's very easy to kind of switch that over to a Chinese page. Um, And even if it's an English page, it's still a much improved experience for that Chinese uh, customer who may be fluent enough to be able to read the English, um, but not be able to understand if a beauty advisor were to speak to her.
0: How else do you think COVID has impacted or changed either travel or beauty, beauty products, beauty brands, beauty marketing, the development of both? Can you quickly just speak to that?
1: Yeah, I think that the, obviously the e-commerce um Weight in terms of a mix of business has drastically increased. Uh, I think that there's a lot more pressure and demand to be able to feed really compelling content and brand messaging to that consumer uh, via their own DTC, via their social media, uh, through influencers, through brand partnerships. I just think that um, even though it seems like it's easier to reach that customer, Uh, I think it's actually quite challenging because there's only so much space within a phone or a laptop to be able to compete with the hundreds of thousands of other brands that are trying to reach that same customer, as opposed to where um, you're, you know, seeing the traffic come through your stores and your brick and mortar experiences, right? We're still human beings at the end of the day. Um, So... Having somebody talk me through a compelling brand story or demonstrating how a product actually could, um, you know, solve some of my skin problems or some of my makeup needs, um, it's, it's hard to compare that with, you know, an Instagram ad or even somebody showing me how to do it on TikTok. So I think that it it has accelerated the demand for better digital experiences uh, but i do believe it also has put pressure on how to integrate that with the in-store experience at some point you know i have full faith that this pandemic will wane or you know covid will become endemic and we will have to learn how to live with it and people will return to their normal lives and they will seek experiences i mean people obviously are still are already hungering to meet up with friends and family and go and dine out or go to bars. And, and fundamentally, we're, we're social creatures. So I think that that integration between the uh, in-store experience and the digital experience will have to um basically come together a lot more seamlessly. Um, And so for those brands who were primarily brick and mortar and was entering digital or for the DTC native brands who are looking to um, branch into brick and mortar spaces to offer their customers more of a in-person personal experience, I think there's going to be a learning curve on both sides.
0: All right. One last question, staying on the beauty topic and the cosmetics topic. How did COVID in that world impact retail
1: i think that it showed that there could be a lot of brands that can um have a lower barrier to entry so it just seems very uh uh, like like all, it was like the perfect storm with COVID. In fact, there are a lot of people that launched their businesses and brands, and I think actually the barrier to entry in terms of starting your own brand has been vastly lowered, and it's much easier to do so. Um, where I think it remains to be seen is how to scale those brands um, and to extend the longevity of these brands. So I think it's really optimistic um, of a trend to see that. Wow, you know. There are many founders now um, that can... Realize their dream and their vision in terms of offering the products that they want to offer to the consumers um, because these are so many DTC native brands um, that have shown success and that can show success. Um, But what I think is still that remains to be seen is how that extends into the future. And again, how does that translate into a larger distribution strategy? How does that translate into expanding globally? Um, So, That's one thing that I find extremely interesting and fascinating is just sort of seeing how this landscape will play out with so many brands launching and competing against each other um, and seeing who sort of uh, wins at the end in terms of being able to stay sustainably successful.
0: Talking about beauty space in China and everyone knows about KOLs and KLCs and live streaming and their impact on the beauty space, especially e-commerce wise in China. But there are a couple of tactics or uh, I would like to ask you if you do, you know, or could you mention potentially a couple of tactics that are emerging as particularly effective, but. Maybe a bit under the radar. Not everybody knows them. Uh, and as we kick off 2022, talk about those in how they're driving growth in the beauty space in China.
1: Yes, I, and I think the KOL topic is, is is a tough nut to crack. I think everybody knows that that's the hot word to go to. Um, it, they it's it's actually probably going to be a lot pricier than many brands anticipate. Um, so let's talk about KOLs or KOCs even. Uh, so key online consumers right? Um, Or the influencers, I think they're all doing the same thing. They're just at different levels. Um, I think the one of the biggest key criteria that we look at, um, or we should be looking at is the quality of that KOL or KOC. There is no um, get rich quick, or scale quick when it comes to any type of influencers. Again, we're all humans at the end of the day, we need to build that relationship, whether it's at the KOL level or the KOC level, to really build that relationship with them, Make sure that the story about the brand and the key points of differentiation of whatever products you may be seeding them is hundred percent clear, and that they're on board with the products that they're receiving. Um, I, I do know that there are some platforms out there that purport to have some sort of algorithm. You can scale the seeding very quickly. Um, that is one way of doing it. Um, it's just may not. It just may not be the best return on investment because the quality of the KOL or KOC that you may be um, targeting may not be the ones that you actually want. So you may get a lot of volume, but not a lot of quality. Uh, One one neat trick is to look at the KOL and KOC on a global scale. Not all Chinese KOL or KOCs may reside in China. Um, and so, this is something that I like to talk to a lot of my clients about, which is looking at the Chinese on a global basis. Where do they reside and whether they're influential to your end consumer in China or not? So, looking beyond just China borders is something that I would definitely advise um, many brands looking to enter China or looking to build their. Um, presence online um, is looking at where that Chinese user could be and that she may not necessarily or he may not necessarily be residing in China. They could be overseas and highly
0: influential on social. I was wondering if you might indulge me in a small discussion of the benefits of highlighting hero products versus just your a, a brands, so whomever's listening versus just highlighting your new products when entering China.
1: Yeah. So the hero product strategy is definitely something that's very different compared to how you might launch your products uh, outside of China. I think outside of China, they're the sequence or the pace of new product innovation is definitely more pressurized, right? The consumer is constantly looking for that new product that the brand may be launching. Um, based on the seasons, every single year, brands are definitely pressured um, from my experience to launch two to four new products, if not more, a year. Um, and I'm probably referring more to skincare brands. I mean, makeup brands could be way more. Um, but in China. The way to kind of get to that customer's heart is hero strategy. So so focusing on a couple of key hero SKUs, because the competition is so fierce, the landscape is so saturated, how do you stand out um, amongst all of your competitors? And that is via hero product strategy. So not to say that munis isn't important to the Chinese consumer, but the hook is major hero products that they rely on, that they develop a loyalty with and then introducing newness um, to that consumer who's already been hooked uh, with your brand. So that is definitely a different way of um, attacking the customer demographic versus outside of China. And so hero product strategy is really key. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. Um, So again, an extension also in terms of the KOL or KOC conversation, that quality bit is is very, very important. The Chinese consumer is extremely savvy. Um, She researches brands, ingredients, um, product benefits um, to a very high level. Um, They are way more industrious about comparing different products and really digging into a lot of product claims um, as opposed to what we see in terms of consumers outside of China. So building up that hero strategy and developing that brand loyalty via that um, those few key products and then extending into newness um, is sort of what we've seen uh, to prove better success within China.
0: I want to now dive into VIPKID and, of course, your work there. But first, maybe could you tell us just a little bit about what is VIPKID?
1: Yeah, so VIPKID is a ed tech uh, platform. So a lot of people used to refer to it as sort of like the Uber for education, where it's a marketplace that connects teachers who could be living anywhere around the world with students who could be living anywhere around the world. And so it's an amazing um, platform that basically improves the access to education for kids, um, as well as empowering many, uh, how do you say, independent contractors, to have a side hustle or maybe have more flexibility uh, for their jobs. So there are all these teachers around the world that can log into this platform and offer their teaching services to children who may not have access to such qualified teachers. Now, the main demographic are uh, children who live in China. um, And there are many, many cities in China beyond the tier one or tier two that people mostly read about. it's very difficult for these children to have access to um, native English speakers if they wanted to learn Chinese. So, and even if there was an English school down the street, the parents would not necessarily be educated enough to know whether that school has employed um, basically, you know, certified teachers or even native speakers. So what VIP Kid does is there's a huge team that vets all the teachers that apply to be uh, teachers on that platform, uh, inclusive of via reviewing their diplomas or teacher certifications, in-person interviews. They have to go through trial lessons where they're being observed by a member of VIP Kids staff um, before they are accepted as a teacher onto the platform. So there is, you know, this huge vetting process that goes into place so that the users So the parents and the families and the students um, feel very confident that they are going to be uh, in a lesson with a teacher that has been fully vetted by the company.
0: What is it like being part of a team in the educational tech space? And I know that you work with startups quite a bit. Uh, You live in the Valley. We all know that it's a super interesting space and that even with COVID, it has grown tremendously. We know that Chinese parents invest a lot of resources in the education of their kids. Did that at all affect the way that you guys built that business?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the demand has always been there. Um, and in fact, there has been a, an announcement by the Chinese government most recently um, that basically says that because of inequity, um, they are cracking down on a lot of these ed tech companies. So the likes of VIPKID and their um, competitors um, have gone through quite a bit of uh, challenges just in the recent months based on the Chinese government's uh, announcement. But Taking politics out of it, um, fundamentally, there is a lot of demand from Chinese families for their children to um, to be able to get ahead, right, and I, and and that's part of the crackdown from the Chinese government, right? Because there's this high pressure cooker on these students and families to kind of get ahead. Who can take um, more enrichment classes than their neighbor, right? Who can take more English classes? Who can take more math classes? Um, the university exam is is so stressful uh, for these children, and it's a make or break type of life for them, which is completely unknown to. Um, the students here in, in the U.S. Like when I think about my children, right, they, they just need to get their grades, they go to school, but there aren't these examinations at key milestones in their little childhood um, that there are that may determine their fate um, in life as, as it does in China. So all of these enrichment classes have always been in demand, and it's more about access and supply. Right. So how do you you know if these parents are working long hours, if the commutes are difficult in China, how to get children to the activities that they would want. And so with the online education business and the industry, it all of a sudden opened up a world of opportunities to these families to have access to classes for their kids who can log in from home um, at, at night. Right. So after they come home from school or on the weekends and be able to learn a topic or buffer up their bolster their knowledge in certain topics um, online and without the burden of having to travel to places or um, or finding schools that may or may not have been vetted fully. So that I think is is a huge um it's a huge sort of uh, revolution to kind of how to offer education. And we're seeing it here in the US as well, right? With all these different platforms that are offering um, online classes to kids that may not be able to have access um, in an actual school environment or location. Um, So it's 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 definitely the future. Um, Don't know how it's going to play out in terms of how the government will handle um, such enrichment classes, but there are plenty of global companies and companies that are based outside of China. that are definitely capitalizing on on this opportunity.
0: Have you seen a change being in the education space, working with kids and obviously their parents as well, your client customer kind of relationship? Have you felt that maybe there's been a changing of the guard with regards to the importance and the level of intensity uh, on which education is put at the forefront? And I I know that I think. The government is is starting to work to help that along by reducing the number of subjects that are required for national testing or for gal scoring or, or kind of this kind of thing. I wanted to just kind of open up a bit of a general conversation around where you think parents uh, with regards to their kids education and that intensity is 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 it waning? Is it waxing? Where's that going?
1: I think unless there's a structural change in how um, children and students enter university, that pressure cooker environment will remain. And that is just sort of my opinion. And we see it—we see microcosms of that around the world too, right? So even within the U.S., in highly competitive schools, you will see that sort of race amongst families and students to right, have the best college application to set themselves up for the best entrance into a college or university. I just think it's a lot, um, it's, how do you say, it's magnified within China because of the sheer population and the sheer number of schools per that population, um, which is why sort of what you see is a lot of wealthier families do have the ability to uh, alleviate some of that pressure and send some of their students overseas for school. But for those who can't afford to leave or don't want to leave, that pressure cooker will remain based on right, supply and demand. So I believe that culturally, too, that it's not just the Chinese. I believe that Chinese, um, I think it's just, again, based on peer population, um, the migration patterns, the, the Chinese population have emigrated all around the world. And that sort of cultural focus on education and, and the strive to ensure that their students are succeeding um, will, you know, sort of like spread as, as the immigration patterns um, evolve. Um, but there are many other demographics that feel exactly the same about education. And I think it's just that because there has been this need and, and the, the likes of VIP kid were able to break out with a model that showed that there can be access uh, offered to students who otherwise would not have access. I think that is a uh, an example of a pioneer into um, changing and just really revolutionizing the um, online education industry. Um, So, yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, I think that that sort of pressure cooker, mentality will remain for the near future, unless there's massive structural changes. Um, And I I think that pandemic with the rise of uh, mental health awareness and wellness uh, focus and how our children are suffering from um, the whole pandemic and all of the uncertainty and obviously the sort of chaotic lifestyles that have ensued based on, um, you know, staying at home and remote learning, returning to school, then coming back in, then coming back home because of positive COVID cases. I actually see um, a silver lining in the cloud because from my observations, it has shown that education doesn't necessarily have to be one singular model. It's not necessarily everybody has to be in school, in a classroom, you know, for a set number of hours per day. And that there can be Um, opportunities for hybrid models to exist and succeed. Um, There can be ways for children to to maximize their learning that isn't necessarily in-person. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be. I think that the in-person learning is extremely critical, but I do um, see that there has shown there, you know, basically this pandemic has shown us that education can can evolve to become many different types of models and that, in fact, the online learning is giving access to kids all around the world in terms of topics or exposure to different types of teachers um, beyond what anyone would have been able to envision prior to the pandemic.
0: Do you think that today's traditional education systems, either in China or in the U.S., are doing an adequate job of setting kids up to be successful in the workforce and as adults?
1: And I think that's country specific. Would you like me to weigh in on US or China?
0: Yes, I would love to hear your opinion on both sides of the ocean.
1: So I would think in the US, it's very difficult. I think that um, as a mom of three children, a working mom at that, um, I think it's really difficult um because of the lack of childcare. And there's a lot of controversial, obviously, conversations about uh universal pre-K, etc. But when I compare that to the average working professional in China or in Asia, where they have uh different family living situations, right? People in the West tend to live on their own, single units, multi-generational living is probably um, atypical and single family living is way more typical. So you have two parents or, um, you know, a single parent, maybe even uh, looking after their children uh, without much of a network uh, to assist them with childcare. Whereas um, in Asia or Asian families overseas may have a higher propensity to have multi-generational living uh, to support that working parent or that set of working parents. Um, So I think because of that, you know, children's education is definitely short, shortcut, I would say it's um, sacrificed a little bit in the early years um, because of that lack of support uh, from the top, Um, whereas I believe in in China or in Asia. Because you have a lot more support, whether it is affordable help or uh, multi-generational living where you have grandparents or um, other relatives uh, around to help you watch your children or to send them to school, that gives um much more of, I think, of a bigger advantage in terms of how the children are receiving their education um, and support outside of school. So, I think there's some huge fundamental differences. And as an Asian American, you know, I can see that difference uh, very, very uh, personally. You know, I grew up basically with a grandma in the home. My parents worked six, seven days a week, and they were able to go out and make a living and and perform their livelihoods because they didn't necessarily have to worry about us at home with somebody um, watching over us 24, seven, seven days a week. Um, so that's, and, you know, it wasn't, we were very much lower to middle class, um, but I don't know how we would have survived if we didn't have that sort of support at home. It, might, it would have been extremely hard on my parents. And likewise, it's extremely hard for those families who are in similar situations Um, That may not have that sort of support at home. And that definitely influences the education, right? Um, Whether people have to pay to have uh, childcare, or whether they um, are unable to have that sort of support at home. So somebody to say, you know, make sure you're well fed, make sure you're doing your homework. Make sure that you're getting to bed on time. So I think some of those even fundamental type of childcare um, can be lacking if we don't have the right support. Um, so yeah, so I think there's there's striking differences, and I think that really um, makes it a lot more challenging for the average student in the U.S. Uh, to have a. large chance of success um, due to just the, you know, support and and access to education um, that they may have uh, within their own community, as opposed to maybe an average child within the same sort of socioeconomic um, status uh, somewhere in Asia.
0: Karen Raghavan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciated getting to talk to you.
1: It was really fun for me, Todd. Thank you so much.
0: Growing a company is hard doing it in a foreign market exponentially so the best piece of advice i can give you is not to do it alone when you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities and i sincerely hope that you do make sure you choose the right partners to do it with my good friends at wpic marketing and technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter china